Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, news editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, senior reporter at Third Sector. And this week we'll be talking about the importance of influencing work by charities, looking especially at small charities. But before all that, we are welcoming Emily to the podcast, but not Emily Burt, who listeners will be familiar with if you listen regularly. Emily Hall, who has joined our team in the past week. Emily, welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Lucinda. I'm delighted to be here. My name's Emily Harrell. I've just joined the team at Third Sector as a senior reporter. And where were you working before? I've just come over from Children Young People Now. Great. So you're very well placed then to talk about the new story that you've been covering, the story about Children England that broke last week. Do you want to tell us a bit about what's happened? Yes. So Children England is a collective body for children's charities. It's been doing this amazing work in the children and young people sector for 81 years and they announced last Wednesday that they would be closing their doors. We've had conversations with Cathy Evans, the chief executive of Children England and she told us that the closure came as a result of the extraordinary difficult economic circumstances that the entire country is currently facing. She also said that the inflation crisis over the past 18 months was the final nail in the coffin for Children England. Now I've been looking into this because it raises significant concerns about the future of charity infrastructure bodies. Mm. So I've been working on a long read for Third Sector that is due to come out this week. This is not the first closure that we've seen. So the National Council for Voluntary Youth Services closed in 2016. The Small Charities Coalition closed last year. And the number of voluntary sector infrastructure bodies in the UK has fallen since 2006, according to a recent analysis from 360 Giving. And it raises issues, I suppose, you know, infrastructure organisations are generally not providing direct services themselves, they're supporting other charities, but it does raise issues for how the policy voice can kind of get through to government, because often they're the ones that kind of act as the kind of the go between, if you like, between the frontline charities and the government itself. What sort of issues have you been finding that have been thrown up by some of the people you've spoken to? Yeah, well, that's absolutely one of the issues is that these infrastructure bodies are so vital to ensuring that the entire ecosystem runs smoothly. So after speaking to Sarah Vibert from NCVO, we had a discussion about the fact that local infrastructure is currently far weaker than it was sort of a decade ago. And it's a direct consequence of underfunding cuts to local government. And then these wider national bodies closing reflects a continuation of that trend, but just on a national scale. Well, that is really sad news after 81 years of this charity being in operation. And let's sincerely hope that it's the last one that we hear about for a while. But hopefully we'll be hearing from you again very soon. Emily, thank you so much for coming on. Moving on to our main discussion of this week. How much influencing work do you do as a charity? And do you have enough time and resources to do it properly? We'll be speaking to two guests today to find out why it's important and how to make sure that you get your message across as impactfully as possible. 
First up is Elizabeth Jimenez Yanez, Policy and Communications Manager at the Latin American Women's Rights Service, or LAWS, a charity that provides counselling and legal advice to Latin American women in the UK and organises integration and other social activities. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Lucinda. Thank you for having me. And with us in the studio is Duncan Shrubsoll, Director of Policy, Communications and Research at the Lloyds Bank Foundation. He leads the foundation's work to influence policy and practice and previously worked at the homelessness charity Crisis. Hello and welcome, Duncan. Hello, thanks for having us. Should we start just by talking about what we mean by influencing? Could you give us a, a definition of what we're talking about here? Well, influencing is, in its simplest form, is changing the way other people do things to improve policy and practice. It sometimes can be quite a loaded term that people think it has to be, you know, waving a placard or going on a march. And that's part of it. But in its broader sense, it's getting somebody else to do something. And as a charity, you often provide a lot of services, but you're often picking up the failures from elsewhere. And so influencing is changing those root causes, those root issues, which make things harder for people. So challenging bad things and making better things happen. And could you give us some examples then in practice of what some of those behaviours might be? So infancing can be anything from, you know, the sort of standard things, talking to your MPs, feeding into consultations, talking to civil servants. At a local level, it can be, again, talking to council officers, councillors, but also it can be informing the media and the public about issues that they weren't always aware of. It can be working with other charities and other providers to make sure that they better understand particularly the needs of more marginalised or kind of grassroots communities and charities. And it can also be talking to your own supporters, funders, trustees to make sure that they're fully aware of what the issues are and what needs to change. And Elizabeth, could you tell us about some of the influencing work that the Latin American Women's Rights Service has been doing? Yes, I think a key element of the work that we've been doing has to do with raising awareness of the particular experiences and the particular barriers that migrant women who are exposed to gender-based violence face. One of the key areas in which we started to do work at very early stages has to do with influencing policymaking and decision-making in a specific the domestic abuse bill back in starting in 2018 and finishing by 2021. And what basically we've been doing is, as a frontline organization, bringing the evidence that we collect from the service delivery that we have in the organization to influence changes to improve access to rights, but also a provision to rights for one of the most marginalized group of victims, migrant women. It's also about everyday working, and I think it has to do with, for instance, the fact that we, by providing, by being a community-based service, we manage to get in touch with local authorities, for instance, and we talk about the failures that they might be having in the provision to support for the most marginalized and how they can improve this provision of services by working alongside organizations such as laws. So really important just to highlight that influencing from the organization, it's done through different levels and spaces of decision-making from local, very local, regional and national level with working parliament. And if we take a little bit of a step back, why is this work that you're doing necessary? Migrant women have been exposed to violence for many years, but their experiences and their specific needs were not really presented 
at levels of decision making. There was no representation of migrant women speaking about these specific issues. So we start from raising awareness, but also looking to bring accountability to these state failures to protect all women without discrimination. And as I mentioned before, it's also about representation. It's being able to have frontline organizations that have a wealth of expertise, experience to the decision-making spaces. It's for us to sit at the table and for us to influence the design and the implementation of policies that are going to affect women from our communities and ourselves as well. Thanks, Elizabeth. And Duncan, being where you are at the Lloyds Bank Foundation, where your work focuses very heavily on supporting small charities, why do you think it's important for small charities in particular who are working on cause areas across the board to participate in influencing work rather than focusing first and foremost on delivering frontline services? I think Elizabeth captured it very well. So we in laws, unlike other small charities, they see day in, day out, people coming, asking for their help, raising issues of concern. And so they're sort of right front and centre. They have the problems and concerns are there. So they can do one of two things. They can either just sort of say it's not for us or they hope someone else will pick it up or they can say we have a duty to try and act and try and make a difference on those issues. We'd supported, as at Lloyds Bank Foundation, we'd supported laws frontline services for a number of years and then we were developing a funding program anyway which was looking at influencing and we could have just put the money into the established organizations the national ones like women's aid and things like that but we could see that in laws there was a kind of a passion and determination to make a difference on this crucial issue for a group that no one else was hearing properly or if they were hearing the issue academically they were then we need to go off and find a case study or we need to go and you know see what's really going on day in day out laws have migrant women who are suffering from domestic abuse and being unfairly treated by the immigration system there so they can work with and alongside and give voice to but you need some capacity to help you do that so as a funder we're able to help give them some capacity we also at different points provided advice but this has very much been laws leading and championing and they've done the best of representing and standing by and with and giving voice to women who've been directly affected by an issue and then working in partnership with others and then also engaging in the influencing space with ministers and civil servants. So they've been fantastic and they're a great example, but there are others out there too. And it's just important that we hear those kind of grassroots perspectives, those real issues as they're lived by people and make sure that they are then taken to the corridors of power, whether locally or nationally. Mm -hmm. And is there a difference between the way in which a smaller charity like Laws can engage in influencing work and get their voice out there versus how a really big charity with a much more established national existing platform can do so. Yeah, you know, I worked previously for Crisis, so I've done the big national influencing. And at Lloyds Bank Foundation, last week I was talking at a select committee about an issue that comes up from frontline charities. So it's not kind of an either or. We need both. We need those with a big platform. But there is something different that a charity like Laws can do to bring a marginalised voice to bear. There's also a kind of hunger and a fire there to make something happen. Now that fire and hunger needs to be, it's not just kind of shouting from the sidelines, but they also know they have to account for every penny. They need to make sure that their influencing is having an impact. And they've worked very effectively in coalitions. Sometimes those coalitions are harder work than others, but it is a way of getting a voice heard and getting it out there. And when laws gives evidence to civil servants or ministers, as I said, it's not an academic issue. Then they can see in you know front of centre who they're talking about. And so that's really important. 
We've also supported, you know, an organization called Expert Link, which tries to give voice to people in the social security system, Working Chance, which has been also doing some work around women affected by the benefit system failing them when they kind of move out of prison and other organizations in the refugee and asylum seeker space. And it's really important that those voices are out there alongside working partnership. And another great organization we support, Z2K, they sit in lots of groups with all the big disability charities, but they also know that the clients that they've supported through PIP and WCA tribunals, they've got them front and centre and they can bring something different to those larger policy teams. Elizabeth, it would be helpful if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you've faced in your influencing work along the way and how you've managed those. How do you ensure you can influence a government that it's not always listening to someone who's saying something that is different to their stance? We work in the intersection of gender-based violence and migration. And we know the stand that the government has around migration in the last years. So it's been difficult to have conversations around that. But it's also been a great time to find allies, not only in the charity sector, but also stakeholders, but also decision makers. We worked previously in our work in Parliament with the specific MPs that have a commitment to improve access to rights, but also to guarantee that everyone can be protected without discrimination. So I think it's about thinking different strategies and different levels of influencing. So we might not be able to influence at the moment the national government on specific issues, but we know we have allies at the local level that might have a different view so we're going to go there and explore opportunities to show that change is possible. Another challenge always comes with capacity. Because, of course, having a policy role in the organization has allowed us to bring representation, to be in spaces that 10 years ago maybe we never thought we would be able. And this has been thanks to the support that the foundation has given to us. But also, as you create more visibility, more requests start to come, right? So there's a moment in which you need more capacity to think moving from one policy person to creating a policy team that has different levels and different responsibilities. So Elizabeth, it sounds like collaborating with others, working with people who have different types of experience in this influencing area has been a successful way for you to carry out your work. Have you been trying and testing different methods to influence and engage people and if so have there been any that haven't worked so well that you've had to put aside and focus on something different yes definitely i mean as an organization that has been doing influencing work for the last six years we've been trying different strategies depending on the objective we are looking you you don't use the same strategy to influence mps to influence the public, for instance. You need to know your audience. It's been an interesting time because with the government's position around migration, we need to get creative and we need to get innovative ways in which we can tell a story that it's not only focused on a specific area. We work with migrant survivors of gender-based violence, domestic abuse, violence against women and girls. One of the Key elements also, because as a frontline organization, we have access to this information directly, has been to tell stories. We talk about numbers, we talk about statistics, but we also bring the stories of these women. We bring these women, because there's many women interested in this situation to change, 
to talk directly with those involved in policy making for them to see what are the real consequences of this policy work. But this is not always possible, right? Because there's there's challenges around like supporting someone who wants to participate in policy work who has been victimized. We need to be very aware of, of the specific needs that someone who's participating in policy as a person with lived experience have, right? And not everyone responds the same way in a positive way to stories. And you need to ensure that you're protecting someone who has lived experience. What has not been very positive? I think there's occasions in which you need to realize you won't get a change of position from certain actors. And after trying several times with different strategies, if there's a close no, maybe you need to take a step back and say, like, maybe this is not the time to try to influence this specific actor. But this is the time to try to influence someone else or someone who has not a clear position around this issue because they might not be informed that this situation is happening. And that's exactly our case with the public. Many people didn't know what were the situations, what were the specific consequences of changes to the immigration system for migrant victims and survivors of domestic abuse. So then we put more effort into influencing this audience and to try to hear from them what specific questions they have. But overall, I would say our work, it's a learning experience all around every single strategy we decide. We evaluate, we monitor, and then we decide whether this is working, but not in a static way, because it might have worked with this specific actor once, but it might not in the future. So you need to, to get creative and innovative. So I think what Elizabeth said, there's a couple of things that are really key there. So infancing is tough. Infancing is tough any time. Infancing is particularly tough at the moment with this government. And Laws is working on two tough issues, violence against women and girls and migration and immigration. And you stick them together. And like that's one hell of a hard job. But I think what's fantastic about what Laws has done is actually this point about kind of the ducking and diving, the creativity. Though we've tried that route. OK, that's not working. Let's try this route. So we're trying to influence the police or a select committee or the public or the GLA or others. And actually, lots of other charities who've been in the influencing game for years and years could learn more from that. They tend to use more static models and go, oh, OK, well, we didn't get very far. You know, laws can't afford to stop. They've got women coming in every day and they need to keep looking for new opportunities. I think the other point about stories is really good. Now, sometimes stories can get overplayed. They're one part of an influencing, but actually really powerful stories. I remember sitting part of the debates around the domestic abuse bill and people were talking about a firewall between immigration enforcement and domestic abuse. And you kind of go, OK, but it sounds a bit academic. Whereas actually when Laws tells a story which says, look, you imagine if you are a victim of abuse and if you go to the police, they are not going to help you. They are going to go and look you up on a database and call immigration enforcement. And if you know that your abuser knows that and holds that over to you, it becomes very real. You suddenly realise. And I remember, you know, there was a committee on the bill and that story being told to some conservative MPs who were normally like pretty strong in immigration. You could see the brain starting to work going, OK, yeah, I'm starting to get that. Now, it's still another step to turn that into kind of change of policy and law. But, I, but you know, the fact that laws were able to share those stories and then use the other tools around infants means it's been got on the radar and stayed on the radar and we still need to get the right solutions but it's been there in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise and which element of that story or those stories that you were telling do you think 
got the attention or the interest of what have otherwise been quite hostile ears to this discussion? You think about universality of rights, right? And that's a way we talk about specific experiences. And you talk about experiences that can happen to you, that can happen to me, but also experiences that are or vulnerability that is increased by decision-making, right? So I, as a migrant woman in this country, I understand the immigration system, but not everyone would understand that. So you try to tell a story that it's accessible to everyone. So you talk about the experience of the abuse this woman is going through and how perpetrator is weaponizing immigration status, and you humanize that. You tell a story. You say, like, this is Lucia, let's say. And Lucia has been through this situation because the system has allowed these inequalities to continue to happen. And because Lucia's perpetrator has been not held to account because the government continued to leave him to abuse her in impunity. So you also create this sense of injustice in people because people listen to this story, read this story and say, like, no one should be exposed to that. I think one of the key elements is to touch on the human part of different audiences and to say, like, this can happen to anyone. This shouldn't happen to anyone. Everyone should be protected regardless of any protected characteristic immigration status. So this is a key element of this storytelling. Duncan, you've seen a few governments come and go, (laughs) I should imagine, in your time while you've been doing your policy work. How would you assess the current sort of outlook for small charity influencing at the moment? So I've also worked in central and local government as well. And it's really bleak at the moment because it's not just about the kind of policy agenda, but, you know, you take domestic abuse, for example, under the Theresa May government, there was a genuine interest there and people were having conversations with civil servants. Some often now the the sort of basic processes that people use for influencing have broken down so that there isn't the engagement that's happening. Civil servants are busy and distracted elsewhere. We had the immigration and asylum bill, which was the biggest bit of legislation that was rushed through parliament in you know 24 hours or something like that. So there wasn't the opportunities for input and debate and, and engagement. We have often government seeming to be more by press release and statement rather than consider policy. So it is really tough. As charity campaigners, whether we're big or small, we've got to be creative, collaborative, look into those challenges, as Elizabeth was saying, and and not give up. But there are some opportunities. There are some backbenchers always. There's uh, all party parliamentary groups. Clearly, the broader political environment is changing and people are starting to engage with thinking about if there are other governments and looking at shaping what the opposition party's policy platform might be. So, you know, you always have to be creative in looking at new ways forward. In a UK context now with devolved authorities more, you know, whether it's Scotland or Wales or Metro mayors or individual local authorities, we always got to be looking for those other opportunities. And in the public, in the media, one day you open the newspapers, and you think, oh, God, everything's against us. And then the other day you can open and see some new potential strands of thought where people are more open to different ideas. So we've got to keep looking at all of those different avenues and keep being persistent. Zooming back out again, if you look at all the big picture changes in this country, so whether on the environment, gay rights, international development, the smoking ban, the mental health, a big one, all those big seismic shifts 
were led by and for charities in the end, creating the political space that politicians then either willingly moved into or grudgingly realised they had to get up to speed. And that's then created the space for parliaments and parties to make action. So as the voluntary sector, we can never kind of say, oh, it's too hard and, and leave the stage. We've always got to be in there fighting for things to improve. Can we talk about the practicalities of doing that and joining that fight? Because particularly at the moment, you've got a lot of charities who have demand for their own frontline services going up and up whilst yeah. it's becoming increasingly difficult to get hold of the cash they need to do that. And properly engaging in this kind of work inevitably requires time and therefore resource and therefore money. Yeah. <laughs> How is the Lloyds Bank Foundation supporting charities in this area through your funding mechanisms? And how do you think funders more generally can be more supportive? It's really tough. So at Lloyds Bank Foundation, we've run five funding programmes this year on a mixture of uh, influencing and frontline work, and all of them have been massively oversubscribed, like more than other years. So whether you're wanting money for a local domestic abuse or homelessness services or national influencing, everything is tough at the moment. So we can't be under any illusions there. I think it's really important that funders do prioritise influencing, and that's either through specific funding or through, if you're giving unrestricted funding, often in a small charity, the CEO is the person doing the influencing. And as a funder championing that actually, if they do influencing, that's a good thing. At Lloyds Bank Foundation, we've had two specific funding programmes. We have one on national influencing, particularly looking at accommodation, refugees and social security issues. We're in the moment of assessing. We had 180 applications for that. We're going to make about 17, 18 grants. That shows you the kind of scale. And most of those applications are really strong. And we're also just doing a funding program at the moment, looking at local collaborative influencing, because that's also important. And again, we've had lots of applications. And we're doing other work looking at charities focused on Black, Asian, minority ethnic communities and deaf and disabled communities, because that's all really important. That's unrestricted money, not specifically for influencing, but they might use it for that. So we know it's tough. There are other funders out there doing influencing, but we need more to see that as a priority. We talk about, you know, we use lots of C's today. We talk about overcoming challenges with creativity and collaboration. There's three C's we talk about as well, which is capabilities, capacity and confidence. Charities need that to be able to campaign effectively. And Elizabeth talked about the capacity, whether that's a policy person or comms work or chief exec time. Capabilities. Often people have it, but sometimes that's having specific help around media or research and using data or networking with others. We try to bring together the charities that we fund around influencing to share from each other and share experiences. But I also think there's one thing here, which is about confidence. Now, laws have never been lacking in confidence, actually. They had a lot of confidence to go off and fight. Although sometimes I'm sure they, when they hit some brick walls, thought, well, what do we do now? But one of the interesting things we see about lots of the frontline small charities, and as Lloyds Bank Foundation, we support over 500 across England and Wales. Sometimes we have conversations with them. And we talk about what influencing they do. And they say, oh, we don't do influencing. We just do service delivery as a sort of article of faith. Then you explore it and they say, yeah, we don't do influencing. But yeah, last week we were in talking to the council and we're doing some training for the police force and we're working as part of the, you know, an integrated health setup. And they kind of don't see that as influencing or they see it as a distraction from their work. I remember going to visit a charity and they said, oh, God, our service manager's not here because she's spending the morning at the council helping them rewrite their strategy. And she, they saw that as like something to apologise for. And we're like, no, that's brilliant. Because if you go and rewrite the council strategy, that has much bigger impact than you can do through your services alone. And it goes back to something I said, that sometimes influencing is seen as this kind of one size fits all. You know, you've got to march on Downing Street or it isn't influencing. And actually giving people, small charity leaders in their communities, 
you know, they often are the domestic abuse service or the homelessness service or the mental health service, that one in the town. And they've got huge power to go off and talk to councils, local businesses, faith groups, schools, whatever, that can help shape, stop more people getting into difficulty and help more people get out of it. Completely, that takes time, that takes effort, that takes capacity. So we need more funders to get behind specific funding for infancing and unrestricted funding that allows staff to do what they see best which, yes, is always going to involve running services, but sometimes it will also go off, involve rattling cages of others to get them to do better. And Elizabeth, it would be helpful if you could finish just by giving a few tips for other small charities that might want to do more in the influencing space. What sort of practical suggestions can you provide? Of course, I can provide with some tips. And we have learned a lot in the last years doing policy campaigning and advocacy work. But just going back to the point that Duncan made, it's really important to get funded to do policy work. We need a specific pots of funding that are restricted for policy work because that allows organizations to have a specific roles to establish and to develop strategies for influencing. For me, the first one would be working collaboration with other organizations. This is key, especially in the current political landscape. Have communication, learn, monitor, have conversations around different strategies and work together. Work together in developing plans for specific issues. Then it's important to have constant revisions around data collection. As a frontline organization, we come across many stories many women with lived experience who are keen to participate in policy work. So it's about looking for opportunities for these stories to be told. And you you need to be creative. It's not only about talking to media with a woman with lived experience. It's about, for instance, when we did work for the domestic abuse bill, one of the resources that we produced that was really effective was a booklet of women's stories that were collected by lawyers with the collaboration of different organizations. And what it was really important about this resource was showing that barriers faced by women were repeated in different stories, showing how systemic the issue is. This is not an isolated case. You show how systemic and how the solution needs to be structural as well. And I think talk to organizations who have experience and who have made mistakes but also have learned from these mistakes and continue to improve the way that they are doing this influencing advocacy campaigning work. Everything Elizabeth said, creativity, collaboration, giving people voice. I've got some P's for you there. I think you start with some passion. That's the passion for why you exist. The people, you're rooted in people. What is it that they're facing that you need to do something about? Then have a bit of a plan. What is it you want to change? And then therefore, what do you need to put in place to get there? But don't get stuck on the plan. Pick something and get stuck in. Sometimes too often, you know, you see people endlessly, what if, if, what are that? Actually, the best way of learning how to do influencing is to start doing it, realize what works, see that, oh yeah, this is good and move on. And laws have done that in spades and others can do it. There's no answer. The only wrong answer is not to give it a go. So everyone should start somewhere and try and take that passion do something for the people they exist to serve. Loads of brilliant pointers. Duncan and Elizabeth, thank you both so much for joining us.
Well, that's it for this week. Don't forget that you can read the transcripts for all the recent podcast episodes on the Third Sector website. And it would be great if you could also fill in the survey that we've got running about the Third Sector podcast. The link can be found in the show notes. Thank you to our guests, Duncan and Elizabeth, and our producers, Inga Marsden and Navpal.